opening play. How heaven laughs out with glee, where like a bird set free, up from the eastern sea soars the delightful day. Today I shall be strong. No more shall yield to wrong, shall squander life no more. Days lost, I do not know how. I shall retrieve them now. Now shall I keep the vow I never kept before. And sanguining the the skies, how heavily it dies into the west away. Past touch and sight and sound, not further to be found, how hopeless underground falls the remorseful day. Do you recognize something of yourselves in this poem? Some people, of course, consider themselves close to perfect. And others are beyond remorse. Some people may be too busy with being a success in this world. And others are too harassed by the miseries of this life. They simply have no time to think about regrets and remorse. But most of us, I think, will at times know such emotions. Something went wrong. We did not live up to our standards. We failed God or other people. But after a night of aggravation and agitation and tossing and turning, there is another dawn, another day, another chance, a clean slate, a new beginning. How clear, how lovely, bright those beams of morning play. Up from the eastern sea soars the delightful day. Now, now I will be afraid of that irritating, useless idiot at work. We will be patient with that totally exasperating teenager. We will make peace with our partner, our in-laws or the neighbors. We will put in an honest day of work. We will leave the bottle, the pills or the internet alone. We will finally do this day what we should have done. Today I shall be strong. No more shall yield to wrong. No squander life no more. Now shall I keep the vow I never kept before. But then when the day is nearly gone, we realize that we did not succeed. We fell short again. The occasion is past and the opportunity to do it right is squandered. Time cannot be retrieved and what is said and done cannot be reversed. And all that is left is regret and remorse, a day full of it. How heavily it dies into the west away. How hopeless on the ground falls the remorseful day. Do you recognize something of yourselves in this?
but then over and against this beautiful, sensitive, but also haunting and utterly despondent poem stands another poem. A Hebrew poem of 3,000 years ago of an indefinitely deeper understanding and an endlessly more hopeful conclusion. And that is Psalm 51. And that poem will be the text for our meditation this morning. Psalm 51 is a psalm of penitence, of penance, or of repentance. One of seven penitential psalms. Now, penitence has been an important topic of reflection throughout church history. It's even one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. But today, for most, it is a strange and rather peculiar concept. On the TV today, if you look at the BBC or the ITV series, Barnaby or whatever, they regularly equate it with some self-flagellating priest or some other religious fanatic. But that is ignorant nonsense, as we shall learn. For we will look today at this psalm. And before we turn to the psalm, let us look at the background. We are told in the superscript, which probably goes back to the editor of the book of Psalms, that we should place it in the context of Nathan's visit to David after his sin with Bathsheba. This background is questioned, also based on the verses 18 and 19, which are thought to be post-exilic. But the editor of the book of Psalms, which we also believe to be inspired, thought it helpful to see the psalm against that background. And arguments to question the background are also not necessarily very compelling. So we will follow the editor because the David-Nathan background may help us to recognize what is meant by the poet. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba is, of course, well known. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11, and then we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the aftermath, aftermath which is the context of the psalm. There was adultery, and its cover-up. First, there was the cynical manipulation of Uriah, and when that didn't work, it was followed by his murder. And there was an initial denial, even apparently to David himself, because he did not even recognize the rich man in Nathan's story. And then there is the confession, also as sins against God. Chapter 12 repeated that sentence about three times. And both sins deserved the penalty of death. The story, we should note in the margin, also reports that the remaining consequences, the death of the child and the lasting strife in David's family, and of David's acceptance of the lasting consequences of his sin. Because the lasting consequences of his sin stayed with him all his life, notwithstanding God's forgiveness. And then finally, in the last few verses that we read in chapter 12, the hopeful and gracious progression beyond the episode that is Yedidiah, Solomon, and beyond David's son, of course, the surviving promise of the Messiah. Now, with that background in mind, 
I would like to summarize the message of Psalm 51 for you this morning as follows. There is hope in confession. There is hope in confession. And we note going through the psalm, the route, the way, the road to this hope and this joy. And we note three things. First, the prayer of confession. The verses 3 to 6. Of both sins and moral incapability. And then in the second place, the petitions for forgiveness and renewal. In the verses 7 to 9 and then 10 to 12. And in the third place, the promise of praise. In the verses 13 to 19, both personal and communal. Now this leaves, as you may have noticed, the verses 1 to 2, the invocation and in a way the executive summary. And we will address these verses in the closing summary of our meditation. So again, there is hope in confession. And we note in the first place the prayer of confession, the petitions of forgiveness and renewal, and then the promise of praise. So in the first place, then, there is hope in confession, in the verses 3 to 6, the prayer of confession. Now, in society today, many are leaving the concept of personal guilt for failing or for sin behind, or at least they're trying to. Collective guilt is sometimes acknowledged, if not actively promoted, for the armaments race, for the destruction of the environment, for hunger in the third world, for the capitalist drive, for consumption, for colonialism, for slavery. They're all seen issues of collective guilt. And for the church, they have their own sets of categories. The inquisitions, the stakes, the religious wars, the intolerance, the crusades, and so on. And action groups demand apologies to be offered. No doubt all earnestly felt, but I'm afraid nearly always with the sanctimonious aside of, of course, I personally did not participate in any of this. Because at the same time, personal guilt for personal shortcomings and one owns sin, such a quaint and funny word these days, that is an old-fashioned, if not unhelpful, if not harmful concept that is rapidly fading away and to avoid depression or worse best helped on its way out and for the secular world many norms have evaporated homosexuality euthanasia suicide adultery divorce prostitution even abortion are accepted practices and the question of personal guilt does barely emerge in many Roman Catholic churches, the confessionals serve only as broom cupboards, as the practice of confession, as part of the Roman Catholic sacraments of penance, have fallen out of use. And do we escape from the trend? Do we still recognize personal guilt? And then, equally important, do we know how to deal with it? 
Or do we actually find it hard to identify failings for which we personally and not others or the circumstances are account- we are accountable? But then you may well ask, was and is all this preaching about conviction of sin that had the church goers in their black suits crawl through the gray dust wasn't it horrible and is the teaching that there needs to be a linear progression in time from first the misery of a deep conviction of sin through then hopefully an experience of salvation to finally a life of thankfulness is it not a cruel tragedy that left many in despair and depression or resignation because they got stuck in the conviction of sin phase and never made the transgression, the transition to the experience of salvation. Amidst all these questions, we then here meet David and his Psalm 51. David at this stage of his life is in his full power and glory. He is king of all Israel. In Jerusalem, his own personal fiefdom, his own city, God had elected as the seat of the temple, the place of God's presence. He was a man that had been identified as a man after God's heart. Whom a little bit earlier God in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 had entered into an eternal covenant. A true believer if there ever was one. And then he commits adultery. He tries to cover it up with murder and is in complete denial. Even to himself when Nathan appears. And both were capital crimes in Israel as David and Nathan both know and confirm. And in his psalm we learn how he reacted and dealt with his guilt once he was so brilliantly exposed by Nathan and indirectly, of course, by God. So let us turn then to the verses 3 to 6. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So the first thing we encounter in this psalm is an intensely personal consciousness of sin in the fourfold repetition of the first person pronoun. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And twice he acknowledges in these phrases not just some unfortunate turn of events, but wrongdoing, transgressions and sin. And note also that the circumstances behind which we so often hide do not enter into the equation. They're not even mentioned. Whether Bathsheba was seductive or seducing him or not, 
or whether he felt under political or other pressure to cover up the resulting pregnancy or not, it is not relevant. It is with an intense acknowledgement of personal guilt that it all starts. That is the beginning of this journey of hope in the psalm. And it is not like a fleeting moment to be suppressed as quickly as possible because he says always before me. Now the second thing we discovered, discover is the nature of the wrongdoing. It is revolt against God. Because the lazy and the toothless standard of for behavior today, you can live your life as you like as long as you don't hurt others, is here categorically refuted. It is a rather flaky standard anyway, as all the aborted children who have neither a vote nor a voice would, if they could, attest. And the hurting wrongdoing against possibly Bathsheba and most certainly Uriah is not denied. In fact, it was brought out very clearly by the way Nathan parabled what had happened. And it triggered a heated reaction on David's part. But it is not the core of the matter. His sin is not defined as breaking of human law, which can be an ass. Nor is it compliance with the mantras of political correctness, which can be opportunistic or pagan. Nor is it deviating from the ethic of today's culture, which can have a completely seared conscience. Now David is empathic. Against you and you alone have I sinned. God is our and David's creator and sovereign. And we and he are here created to serve and to glorify him. And David, in fact, was called to a very high office of being the exemplar king, of leading his people in obedience to God. And sin, ours and his, is the failure to perform that duty of serving God. Because the standard is, what would God want us to do in this or that situation? And in that standard, the Lord Jesus has given us a very, I think, enlightening lesson in the Sermon on the Mount. And David realized it. And he then proceeds to publicly acknowledge, I say so that it may be clear that is the way you could paraphrase Paraphrase verse 4b, so that you, <coughs> God would be justified in his judgment. Because David has also reflected on the awesome holiness of God. And how often when we do wrong do we meditate on this? And the third thing that we learn in this prayer of confession is that we are called from the beginning to serve God, but fail from the beginning. The Hebrew in verse 6 is not so simple, and there are a number of surprising explanations on offer. But we can probably best understand the verses 5 and 6 if we read in verse 6 the expressions here translated as inward being and secret heart, sometimes translated as inner parts or inmost place. 
Literally, the text says, it's a smeared over place or a bottled up place. I think we can best understand them as metonymies used here as synonyms for the word womb. And what the verse then says is, God teaches, desires, requires, and requests from our very first beginning in the womb, truth and wisdom, obedience, service to him as our creator and our sovereign. But, as Davis confesses in verse 5, what he gets from the very beginning is sin and disobedience. David confesses a fundamental inability right from the beginning to do what God demands. David understands. His actions were not incidental or the occasional slip-up of an otherwise decent person. But he and we are, since the fall, in trouble from the beginning. And how often do we reflect on that? So our journey to the hope of confession, the journey we heard in the first place, the prayer of confession. I, I personally sinned against you, my sovereign and creator. And that is the pattern of my life from the beginning. But then we will in the second place hear the petitions for forgiveness and renewal in the verses 7 to 8, 9, and then 10 to 12. First, the petition for forgiveness in the verses 7 to 9. Cleanse me with hyssop. The verb used here means literally to de-sin. And the cleansing with hyssop is an Old Testament liturgical ritual that had to be performed after a defilement because of leprosy or contact with a dead body. You can read it in Leviticus 14 or Numbers 19. Had barred access to God or the community. And only after this cleansing could access to and the relationship with God again be restored. Because sin as Adam and Eve found out in their exit from paradise, makes the originally intended relationship with God impossible. (coughs) And this was symbolized in the cleansing rituals. Now, at the first glance, these rituals may appear somewhat at random. But I think it's useful to realize that in the Old Testament, the dead body represented, in a way, it was the embodiment of the ultimate concept of sin, namely death. And contact with a dead person made thus unclean and required cleansing with hyssop or de-sinning before the relationship with God could be restored. And leprosy at the Old Testament times was a fear disease because it could result in a terrible disfigurement of face and hands and made people horrible to look at. It symbolizes, in a way, what sinful people look like in God's eyes, what distortion sin has brought to his beautiful creation. And as an aside, that is why the celebration of a sinful lifestyle, which you at times can find in the celebrities' magazines at the dentist waiting room, is from a biblical perspective so utterly bizarre. It is like you are filming yourself as a dancing course. 
or show off your disfigured leopard's face on a catwalk. And then the next prayer, petition, wash me and I shall be whited and snow. The image here is of filthy clothes being rubbed, kneaded, beaten against the washing board and coming out, David prays, completely clean. Hyperbolically clean, because what can be whiter than snow? You can also find this imagery in Zechariah 3, where a filthy high priest, Joshua, is given clean clothes so that again, once more, he can appear before God. And then the third one, blot out my iniquities. It is like rubbing out some writing. It may well require some effort and force and time, but once the rubber has been applied, the writing is no longer there. So what David's first petition asks is not that sin is overlooked or ignored. The memory suppressed or temporarily forgotten, if that is possible, but that it is eradicated, eliminated, done away with entirely. And that is, as we may know from the many texts, we at times recite as the assurance of pardon what God promises. He will do away our sins as far as the east is from the west and remember our iniquities no more. And then, only then, can man be in the presence of God and only then can he begin to fulfill his original task and only then can he live in harmony with God and himself. But David asks for more. It's not just going back from minus to zero. Not only is David's analysis of the problem much deeper than the poem we heard, but his goal is more ambitious. Because the poem got stuck in despondency. But David not only wants to escape from the despondency, the crushed bones in verse 8 and later in Psalm 32, but again he is aiming for more joy, gladness and rejoicing. But how can he ask this and how can this be achieved? And that brings us to the second petition, the petition for renewal in the verses 10 to 12. Create a clean heart in me, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Because David knew it, like of course we do. This sinning isn't a one-off. The same addictions and inclinations or new temptations that will abound going forward. And three times David's petitions for persistence and perseverance in his obedience. Create a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit, grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Create. Verse 10. Bara. It's the first word in this petition. And it is a verb which in the Old Testament uniquely designates God creating. It's never used of humans making or shaping or creating anything. And in parallel therewith it also indicates a creatio ex nihilo, a creation out of nothing. The creation of something 
where nothing was there before. It is also the verb used in Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created. It is not some remodeling, a little bit of remodification and bringing out of the good sight in people and giving them a new chance and start and then they will do the right thing. No, the creation of a pure heart is the creation of an entirely new thing. So drastic and profound does David see the getting of a new heart. And then heart here, in the Hebrew poetic parlance, means a human in his inner being, his soul, his spirit. The word he subsequently uses twice in verse 10b and 12. There he explains why he needs this new heart-soul-spirit, namely in order to persist and to persevere in his living in accordance with God's will. Because after having escaped death, twice capital punishment, because of God's forgiveness, he asks for help in now avoiding that fate which would be his when again sinning. David does not despondently Passively and in resignation await the return of yet another daybreak whereupon will follow another failure and another regretting. There is no kusera sera. There is no I can't help it, so let happen what happens. Now in our psalm is the poetic paradox between on the one hand David knowing that indeed he can't help it and on the other hand not giving up, returning to God for help. And that is the second thought in these verses. In order to persevere and have a steadfast heart, he need God's presence in his life. Do not cast, do not take your spirit of holiness and restore to me the joy. Do not cast me from your presence. That was ultimately the punishment, the consequences of sin already in paradise. Adam, Eve, mankind, they can no longer live in the presence of God. The beautiful relationship that existed from the beginning is broken. Uh, but that is what God has promised to restore. To David, in the temple, as the Old Testament symbol of God's relationship and presence in their midst. Based on a Messiah to come. And then do not take your spirit of holiness. The translation Holy Spirit may, I think, be a bit of an anachronism. So do not take your spirit of holiness away from me. Because that is what had happened to Saul. Not so long before this story here in 2 Samuel 11. Saul did not repent. And he did not return to God. So God had taken away his spirit from Saul who had thereafter been sinking away in depression, mental torment, and general ineffectiveness. Effectiveness. But on the contrary, David says, Restore to me the joy of thy help. Because experiencing God's help and presence will give him joy, a renewal, a re-energizing of his life. We should carefully note how it all here is together. Forgiveness. Salvation, God's presence in your life, renewal, joy. Because David, after a much more incisive analysis of the problem, 
is now also for the solution of the misery aiming higher than our poet. Not just regret and remorse, but joy. Because without joy, the joy of God's presence, we cannot persevere. So not in gloominess and despondency, however elegantly phrased, and not in sackcloth and ashes it ends, not even in the conviction of sin and then nothing further, but in joy. And so on our journey to the hope and the joy of confession, we heard in the first place the prayer of confession, in the second place the petitions for forgiveness and renewal, and we will now in the third and last place hear about the promise of praise. Virtually one of the last words in point two was joy. But that is not something just to be experienced in personal privacy, secretly enjoyed in the private sphere. That, of course, is the prevailing view often these days. Religion, values, norms, they are for the private and personal domain. And if you find it helpful and encouraging, well, you're welcome to it. But not to be spoken about or referred to in the public domain. But not so for David. And not so for the Bible. Because the last section is about praise, both personally and in society. In verse 13 we read, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. That is the proclamation of God's ways, God's standards, and God's requirements to sinners who deviate from his ways. And the objective is that transgressors return similar word as David uses for himself in verse 12, restore, and it's a similar word as used for repentance. Now you may remember when Tim Farron was persecuted by the press with the question whether he thought certain people were sinning, he couldn't get the word across his lips. Well, here is David, sinners, transgressors, but also, note, very important, that his objective is not condemning people, but to return them to God, to a harmonious relationship with him, to the restoration of the original state of paradise where man was created to glorify and praise God and walked with his God. And notice what we read about in the verses 14 and 15. His mouth and his lips, so often an instrument of evil, are to praise the righteousness of his God, the God who saved him from death, from the penalty of his sin. And then in the verses 16 and 17, David addresses a misunderstanding that so easily and so often arises. That God can be bribed with sacrifices. Of animals at the temple in his time, maybe with arguments of our decent life today, that there can be a little deal I lead what I think is a decent life, and you get me to heaven. But that is not what God wants. No bribes, no indulgences of sacrifices that Israel for so long and so often fought would do the trick and keep them safe. Nor the indulgences of the good deeds and the decent lives of nice people today. We find the same thought in Psalm 40, which we reflected upon some time ago. 
because God wants your heart, and then the rest will follow. So we'll then follow automatically and self-evident praise and the sacrifice in the public forum of Jerusalem's temple at the center of the nation. But this is only valuable with genuine repentance, confession and turning from renewal sin. And then briefly on 18 and 19, is it a post-exilic addendum? Well, possibly, but not necessarily. David was the exemplar king, responsible for organizing the temple service, as you can read in the book of Chronicles, in Jerusalem, which could, if he had died, be risk. Jerusalem was David's city, and the temple service and the building of the temple itself later by Solomon could have failed if he failed. So they would fit certainly David's psalm. But even if the verses were added later after Israel had been restored after the exile, which of course was the consequence of Israel's sinning, like David was restored after his sin with Bathsheba, the point is really the same. The point is the good news of confession as the road to hope should be proclaimed personally and publicly. So briefly then and in closing. What can we learn from Psalm 51, this poem and its background from 3,000 years ago for our daily life today in the 21st century? Well, in the first place, do not get stuck in denial and cover-up like David in 2 Samuel 11. Some people can keep that going for a very long time. Denial, blaming others, the circumstances, and cover-up. But in the long run, it will turn out to be difficult. And in the final run, impossible. And it will not improve your relationship with God and your fellow man, and it will certainly not do much good to your own mental rest and peace. We will reflect upon that hopefully next week. Because what we learn from 2 Samuel 11 is that David, for David, the attempts to deny and cover up did not lead to any solution. On the contrary, it led to further misdeeds. In fact, it led from adultery to murder. But then also, do not get stuck where A.E. Hausman got stuck. He did progress to the recognition of his failure and even went as far as remorse. But then there he remained stranded and left with only his hopelessness about yet another regretted day. Because that's what it says, and sanguining the skies, how heavily it dies into the west away. Past touch and sight and sound, not further to be found. How hopeless underground falls the remorseful day. Because the past is irretrievable and for him irreparable. There is no hope. The cycle can only be entered into again to go round in the miserable circle once more. Today I shall be strong. No more shall yield to wrong. Shall squander life no more. Days lost I do not know how. I shall retrieve them now. Now shall I keep the vow I never kept before. Yeah, sure. But keep before you this Hebrew poem from God's word, so utterly realistic 
so deeply understanding and so endlessly hopeful. Do you remember the invocation, the psalm's own executive summary? We'll turn in summing up to it. That is in verse 2. The painful facing up to reality. The text means trans- mentions transgressions, sin, and iniquity. The triad indicates the full complement of our failing and misery. And then there is a recognition that this is ultimately a failing towards our God, our sovereign creator. So there cannot be any excuse or blame shifting. But the psalm starts in verse 1 with the juxtaposition of three other concepts. Grace, everlasting love, and compassion. And these are the solid basis for his pleading, have mercy. And his subsequent prayer for forgiveness, renewal, and joy. And on the basis of this threefold expressed love of God... Grace, everlasting love, and compassion. David asks for threefold forgiveness, blot out, wash, cleanse. Now, I do not think that we should construct any mechanical or fixed relationship between these triads. They all express poetically, powerfully, and intensely the completeness of our sin and the completeness of God's love and his forgiveness and redemption. And after a most cruel and cynical deed by a man on whom God had bestowed great favor and which he tried to cover up and about which he was in denial, David left us this psalm. If it tells us anything, it should be that no one has to think him or herself beyond recall. The return and the restoration of David and the hope and the joy to which he witnesses all expressed so powerfully in this psalm. We can read about in David's last words in 2 Samuel chapter 23 where he says, The God of Israel has spoken and the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over man, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant and ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to pro- will, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? And you can read it in 1 Chronicles 29, David's end, where in verse 28 we read, And then he died at a good age, full of days, riches, and honor. And Solomon, the Jedediah from our text, his son, reigned in his place. And the basis for this return and restoration is the work of our Lord Jesus. And at the very start, as we read, at the very start of the proclamation of this gospel by the New Testament church in Peter's address in Acts 2, we hear the echoes of David's witness. First, in the quotation of Psalm 16, where David rejoices that God will not leave him in the power of death, which would have been the result of sin. 
And where Peter then quotes Psalm 110, the coronation psalm of Solomon the Yedidiah from 2 Samuel, and pointing to Jesus as David's ultimate descendant. And he also, in verse 38, finally alludes to Psalm 51. What do you need to do? Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the hope and the joy David expresses in Psalm 51 and is cited by Peter in Acts 2, they all invite us to follow him on that road from confession through forgiveness to renewal and then to praise of his hope and joy. March then with Psalm 51 up to hope and joy. Amen. Let us pray.